Good evening, everyone, and welcome to McKinsey's inaugural Digital Dinner podcast. Hashtag Digital Dinner. This is our series that brings together interesting voices in Silicon Valley to explore today's issues that are really emerging in the digital world while we enjoy a good drink and bite to eat, which is why we're convening tonight at the Madeira Restaurant here at the Rosewood Hotel, right in the heart of Silicon Valley on Sand Hill Road. My name is Brian Gray. I'm a partner in McKinsey's San Francisco office and lead our Consumer Digital Excellence Initiative. And I'm thrilled to be joined tonight by four very vibrant voices in Silicon Valley. I'd like to introduce you to them now. So why don't we go around the table here and we'll start with maybe your name, what you do, and why don't we share to the audience one of your favorite apps or something you've recently discovered in the app world. So Jody, we'll start with you. Hi, um, so I'm Jody Ford. I'm a vice president of growth channels at eBay. Um, app that I've discovered recently, I, I downloaded it six, nine months ago, but I've only just in the last couple of weeks got it working for me. IFTTT, if this, then that. And, 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 and what I've managed to do now, I mean, it basically you can, you can take something like, if it's going to rain, then send me a notification and tell me that it's going to rain. But I've, with a Wemo switch, I've now got it such that when I get half a mile out from my house, it turns the lights on at home. My name's Gina Bianchini. I am the founder and CEO of a startup called Mighty Bell. And my favorite app right now is, the one I use all the time is Twitter. And my favorite new one is Rise, which is your own personal nutritionist in your pocket. So I have a little guy that like talks to me about what I should be eating or not eating. And I'm Diane Esber. I'm a leader in McKinsey's consumer digital practice. And I think an app that I'm recently excited about is called August, which is an app that you basically put on your door to deadbolt your door. And the great thing about this app is now you can remotely lock and unlock your door. For example, if you were doing Airbnb. I'm Benedict Evans. I'm a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And what's my favorite app? I've been using Instacart a lot lately just because I live an hour away from where I work and I'm badly organized and so I tend to order food on the way home so that I can cook it when I get there. All right, well, let's get, um, let's get tonight kicked off. The, the topic we really want to explore this evening is engaging consumers in the digital world, a topic that's been talked about for a long time, but I think we're at an interesting crossroads in some of these issues, so we want to sort of explain, explore the extremes here. The first one, which has gotten lots of headlines, is the mobile majority. The idea that we have now hit the tipping point, right, where mobile traffic has surpassed PC traffic, and especially in the retail world, uh, when shopping is top of mind for consumers. And I'm just interested to hear from, from the panel here tonight. Are we finally at a point where the retailers and e-commerce players are actually going to start mobile first? rather than designing for a PC experience and then figuring out very quickly how to port it over to mobile. Gina, maybe start with you. What do you think? We, uh, we talk a lot and think about it as, from a product development perspective, moving from search to serve. So on the web, you built, in the, in the internet browser world, you could put all these you know, all these links up. And people were really happy seven years ago to go search it out and go find the different places that they wanted to go, contribute what they wanted to contribute. And today, with so many options and so many things, and also this very different relationship to their mobile device that's in their pocket, they want 
you two, convenience is king. Another way of thinking about the way the experience is different, which is that you have this little teeny time, still relative, much smaller screen. And so before you could squash a competitor by adding their feature as a new menu item on your website, and on mobile, they'll never find that feature. On the other hand, the other extreme is you have a search box. And that works as well. What doesn't work is I'm going to try and merchandise 150 options. And you can kind of get away with that on the desktop because you've got all this space. On mobile, you need to have a search box or you need to have a do button. So you can't have 50 things. Well, people are always breaking through. I mean, Snapchat or you know, Instacart or Uber or Lyft or whoever it is. I mean, I think there's, there's a, some of the, sometimes this conversation, I mean, when I hear people saying, oh, you know, the app model is a bubble because most, most apps don't make money or something, we are just kind of doing the web again with slightly different technology. And so when people say, well, most apps don't get downloaded, that's no different from saying, well, most apps, where most websites never got visited. visited. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. Well, yes. Why is that, or, you know, why, why should that be about, that doesn't tell you anything about the kind of the strength or weakness of the underlying model. That's just how, how business works. And maybe one last thing on mobile before we switch gears. Jody, you had mentioned today the, the sort of the, the the mobile devices and entryway to all kinds of use cases: gaming, shopping, etc. And of course, Apple Pay has made payment brought payment back to the front. News. Any sense of how close we are to that actually taking? It's an interesting one. I mean. Is this a good question? Yeah. It's, okay. It's, right. Well, it's a puzzle. Because my first one. one of those my first things, question. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You're really digging into consumer behavior and consumer psychology. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, if we've been sitting here sort of four or five years ago and been told that there's a fundamental problem with your credit card and what you really want is to have your card on your phone, A, we've actually, we've, we'd already been hearing that for five years, but actually, no, it wasn't because... The all, all that changes, you pulled something out of your pocket, you did something, you held it on the thing, on the till, then you put it back in your pocket, you paid. There was no, there was no improvement at all. And what Apple have done is they've said, okay, it's two or three steps simpler. Your phone comes out of your pocket with your finger on the thing, then it goes back in your pocket, and you don't have to take the wallet out of the card, you don't have to swipe it, you don't have to sign, you don't have to put the PIN number in. And so, you know, from a purely utilitarian point of view, there's nothing happening here at all. Well, and, and you know the thing that strikes me as we talk about consumer behavior and consumer psychology is how even removing one step of friction, when it gets reintroduced, I even think about it in terms of, of when a retailer makes me sign my credit card uh, receipt versus the ones that don't, I am put out. You know, I am put out when I now have to sign a credit card receipt. I'm put out when I'm not made to. I totally am too. Because there's a lack, total lack of security. Have you gotten to the point where you'll, you'll step out of taxis now and not pay? Because you forget, right, that that yeah, friction has been removed. Like and Uber, Starbucks have done a huge favor for mobile payments, right? Because they've done the coffee experience seamlessly. They've done the taxi experience seamlessly. All right, let's, let's go elsewhere. Twitter has, interestingly this year, continued to grow. 52 million monthly active users added. But the... The growth rate is starting to decline. 2014 is continually declining. I'm just curious, is uh, clearly social has a ton of influence and will continue to have a ton of influence. But where does social media go from here? And I would say it's far from over. Like I, I think only now, and I'll speak for eBay, are we really working out how to be relevant and how to engage with customers who are on social networks. And I think Facebook, Facebook because of its just 
epic reach is is very interesting for us and and then pinterest because of its kind of commerce play and the relevance and it has a very nice fit with particularly ebay but, but a number of other um, commerce sites and so i think there's a number of new products that are just arriving that finally are relevant where we can actually spend money as a marketeer and go hey i can actually buy access to particular customer groups who are who are relevant to us and, and are our customers are our potential customers we can now provide content to those customers that that feels like it's interesting and actually will attract them back to us. And I think there's a point within that which is that there is, how can I put it, there is social in the kind of literal sense of your friends sharing stuff with you and there is social in the sense of the big platforms just being inventory and potentially targeted inventory and those aren't quite the same things. Um, you know, Twitter or WhatsApp potentially or Line or Facebook Messenger or something is one kind of social where it's actually quite directed and personal. The Facebook newsfeed isn't really social in that sense, it's just inventory. It's, it's a billboard. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where some places in Asia are a little bit ahead, right? Like the WeChats of the world are It's a very different model. I mean, and the thing that they're doing in a sense is, is aggregating. Um, and trying to bundle up services in the way that Facebook did on the web but hasn't yet really been able to do on mobile. I like this the idea you just brought up, Dan, around uh, is, is this, is digital a world, is it going to look like fashion where certain markets around the world will be the leaders, you know? So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening here. One of the things I think is interesting, and it's again, it's a point there's a sort of generalized point that we try and look at mobile as though it's just like the PC business and not and but bigger and it's just not it just all the it's, and I think it's very hard to internalize what it actually means to say there are four four and a half billion people are going to have smartphones um, that you really do mean people who are living in huts that they built themselves with an earth floor that are three hours walk from the nearest paved road and they have an Android smartphone um, and so and it's kind of the first time that the tech industry sold over to everybody on earth. It's never done that before. Like Coca-Cola has and P&G has. But the tech industry has always sold to middle class people before or rich people. Um, and so I think one of the things that flows out of that, and the reason I mention this is that like the PC industry, there was basically one market. You know, it was Americans and people in a bit of Europe and a bit of Japan and so on. But it was basically one market of, of all the same kinds of people. Now you can have a startup in India that can get a huge business in India and another one in Indonesia or in Vietnam and you know or Brazil um, and not care at all what's happening in California or New York. Now, what about from the consumer behavior standpoint? Like in commerce, Jody, you must look at different markets. Are people shopping different ways and people a little bit leading the way and others follow? I think at the highest level if you looked at are offering in South Korea and compared it to what we have in Germany, it's extremely different, right? And, and Asian commerce sites look far more crowded and, and energetic perhaps than, than, than Western ones. I think when we then look at nuances between our German market and our UK market, let's say, you know, mobile is far more developed and, and much more engaged in, in the UK than it is in Germany. And equally, we see far more people in Germany using auctions on eBay than they maybe do in, in, in those sites. So it's there's, different. there's definitely differences. I think some of it is working on a curve that it's just a sort of 
the UK is, I don't know, 18 months, two years ahead of Germany, and in the end it'll catch up. Others are just differences. Germans like, expect more, have higher standards, are maybe more picky. Likewise, Japanese consumers. Yeah, there's an, there's an old joke that when the apocalypse comes, I want to be in France because everything <laughs> happens five years later there. Yeah. Wait, I mean, here's the thing, one, one stat that always baffles me is that in the U.S., by 2020, 80% of transactions will still happen in a physical location. So for all of the conversations we've had about digital, the, the actual transactions yeah, Amazon has 1% of U.S. retail by value. What's that? Amazon has 1% yeah. of U.S. retail by value. So keep going with that. And this is still, so five years from now, it's still going to be highly a physical world. If you are a store, a lot of our listeners are in the retail business or deal, do business through retail. So... What do you say to them about the role of the store? Well, I think there's a there's a specific U.S. macro point about is there too much square footage, which is you know that's a kind of a cyclical issue. I think there's a the way that I think about it is is the retail is the store the end point to a logistics system, or is it a discovery, a place that you go and discover what you want? And if what you're doing is being a truck, it's the end point, it's the place where a truck takes stuff, then you're vulnerable to people with a better way of sending trucks out. If, on the other hand, it's a place that you go and discover something wonderful that you didn't know existed, then you are providing value above and beyond that, purely those logistics. Well, I, I've been thinking about this, and, and again, I'd answer this more as a consumer. Um, the thing that I find so fascinating right now is the number of times that I've gone into a store, and for one reason or another, they told me that it's easier or better for me to go get it online. So, because they don't have my size, or it's not ready yet, but it's available in the online store, and it's not in the physical store. But they will only push you there. They, and, and so, on some level, I've, I've had this happen now multiple times, where I'm like, well, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna take the time, and going back to you know convenience and friction, if I, if I'm taking the time to go down to the store, and I'm just being told that it's better for me to go get it online. I'm going to stop going to the store at a certain point. So all of these services that we're experimenting here in Silicon Valley with food delivery and Instacart and grocery delivery and something shows up in an hour, you know, is it because that just hasn't been rolled out over the next five years in any sort of, you know, effective way to have that kind of an impact? When we look to people, though, a significant amount of just a trend, right, is that this kind of um, buy online, pick up in store, right? Like that's a, huge, a massive trend um, all over the world and, and more pronounced in some countries than others. And I, and I was kind of like, why is that so big? And I kind of thought about the convenience part a, a, a lot. And actually the, the cost part, right, of not wanting to pay the, the shipping, the postage and packaging is, is actually a very significant driver. And I think it's very easy to sit in the valley in a nice restaurant and think about, well, you know, hey, great, is it convenient or not? But actually removing those shipping fees is a really big deal and so we've done a you know something that's working very well in in the UK with Argos where you can buy in on eBay and you can have it delivered into an Argos store on the high street and then you can pick it up as part of your day and actually there's a there's a very large number of customers saving the 5 pounds or whatever it is as part of that is a really big deal. How much of this is true anthropology? I mean it's in us as humans to want to touch and know and trust where that thing goes or is that just a 
nurture thing that it'll go away, as you say, as the. As I don't you go, think it's going to go away, though, because if you think there are other companies going the other way, right, like a Bonobos or a Warby Parker, who are kind of digital natives that actually decided for this discovery point, and sometimes when you look at their dollars per square foot rivaling like an apple. I think there's a point in here that retail is a leisure activity. And, you know, if you're the kind of person that optimizes every minute of your life and you grew up in a part of the country that where retail is not particularly enjoyable and um, you can't walk anywhere and um, nobody dresses not wears nice clothes and there are no there's no culture and no art galleries or anything then you can have this kind of very kind of peculiar culture where you think well why would anyone go to a store ever again surely it should just be brought to you whereas if you live in a city where you actually walk down the street and you say oh that's a nice store I've never seen that before and you go in and you see something that you want and you can spend hours doing that. Um, retail is actually a leisure activity. I almost feel like the changing state of the world and technology and consumer psychology, consumer behavior, you know, that's, that's happening. I think one of the things that, that is just so, um, hard, it's much harder to look at is how do companies how do companies partner, especially if you're not building your own software or you haven't built your own software, how do you conceptualize partnerships that you're moving from being somebody who hires vendors to being somebody that is partnering with companies doing interesting things? And I think that, that that's going to be something and a trend that will take a, a long time because there are entire you know, company organizations and bureaucracies that have... have Essentially scaled up around this, um, whether that's procurement or um, or project managers, and I think that that's going to be that, that those those kinds of things are going to get increasingly technical. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a there's part of it which is around technology expertise and skills, and maybe that's what they need to do. But there's a, there's a part around a kind of philosophy, I think, to build on testing and kind of design and running experiments which I, I, I that idea that we don't know the answer and yet we're going to set a team a team is going to try five things work out which one works refine that and go with that versus the gut instinct part of hey the CMO said go that way and, and when the CMO says actually I don't know the answer let's create some tests I, I think you can use that philosophy and approach, I, I would hope, well, like, and all I, around the world. I think that's right, and I think that the uh, opposite of that is the RFP. This idea that instead of talking to partners that are on the front lines experimenting with things, you're defining in a vacuum what you, what all of the different organizations, uh, you know, and, and divisions in your company want. And, and then you push it. And you push it. And it's, it's who comes back with the closest thing to what you think you want. And I've just, I've seen, you know, I've seen um, certainly not, not for us, but I've seen cases where large companies are, are signing up for two-year web projects. So let's think about that for a second. You're signing up for a massively complex two-year web project. Where's the world going to be in two years? I don't know that it's going to be a lot happening on the web as much as, as thinking about rapid experimentation, iteration, and building out um, relationships. Uh, and and I, am, I am certainly no um, 
commercial for Andreessen Horowitz, but I do think the the um, the model of you have to be interacting with and, and looking at where the world is going, I think is, and partnering with people who are doing interesting things, um, I think is pretty critical. Looking ahead to 2015, and it is that time of year where we start to reflect on the year past and think about the year ahead. What would be your prediction for a breakout innovation in 2015? Jody, what do you think? So as, as a consumer, um, the, the kind of connection of yeah, the Internet of Things, like it's been talked about for a while, right? Like there's a, I, I've just noticed over the last few months that I'm beginning to see it and I'm seeing things, whether it be over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or, or whatever, that things are connecting. And I'm happy to share, like I, I got given a pair of uh, electronic um, scales the link to my phone and that has genuinely changed I've never weighed myself in my life and I now religiously do it every day and it's helping me get fitter and I'm excited by it because it effortlessly I get on them it tells me whether or not it's going to rain Wait, what's the product? it's called WeThings WeThings scale and you get on it it tells you if it's going to rain today so that's helpful but then it, it automatically on your phone it uploads your weight at that moment and you see it over time and rather than kind of thinking, oh, I'm about right. It actually, you can follow it and you can track it. And that, that's just one example of like a pair of scales linking to a phone, right? I'm biased here, but I believe that we're moving to a world where you will have more specialized professional networks in your pocket. Whether that's you know other other marketing professionals, or whether that is other photographers, or other self-employed professionals, or small business owners that are like you, and your ability to access information, learning, and make better decisions, I, I think we have a lot of opportunity and a lot of room to grow there. And I think it's a great example of how the net the networks and connections that you have will continue to move beyond the people who are already in your address book. Diane, what do you got for us? Uh, so I think this is going to be the year in certain pockets where the phone does become the wallet. So I think Apple Pay really is going to change, particularly in the Silicon Valley. So it's not going to happen everywhere, but I'm excited for things like Apple Pay and like Snapcash to fundamentally change the way we pay. Brian, what are you, what's your breakout for 2015? Yeah. We've been waiting. I do think we're close on the fitness tracking, but more beyond fitness and into health, where it is really starts to say not just my weight or my calories or my steps, but my blood pressure, my BMI, my cholesterol. I would love it if I could check, if I could check my cholesterol every day. So I just think this, this fitness thing is the window or the gateway, and you combine that with enough knowledge that our health system is broken fundamentally, I think you're going to see consumers starting to want to own that themselves. I know I do. And I'm hoping 2015 will be the window into that uh, into that space. Nice. But thank you, Jody, Gina, Diane, and Benedict for joining me tonight. Uh, and thank you to our listeners uh, for joining us for our inaugural digital dinner. Please tweet us your ideas for our next digital dinner, which will happen next month. Who do you want to hear from? What do you want to hear about? And to learn more about what we're publishing, check out our site, McKinsey Digital and McKinsey on Marketing and Sales. And please follow us on Twitter, as well as where we're just kicking off our digital dinner hashtag. Thanks again and good night.